Good morning. You know, there's an old proverb about a gentleman who is walking along and he falls into a deep hole, so deep that he can't get out. And so he begins wailing, crying out, help, help. And then finally, this really rough and rugged guy walks by. He looks at the man in the hole and he says, well, that's a shame. You're going to pick yourself up by the bootstraps to get out of that. And he walks on. Then, after some time, a rather holy gentleman walks by, a clergyman, and he looks at the man in the hole and he says, I'll be praying for you. And he walks on by as well. Finally, after some time, this normal, ordinary guy walks by. He hears the cries for help coming from the hole and he looks down and he sees the man that is trapped and without hesitation, he jumps into the hole with him. And the man that's stranded looks at him bewildered, and he says, what'd you do that for? And the man says, because I've been in this hole, and I know how to get out. Remember John chapter 1, verse 14, where it reads, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus getting in the hole with us. God becoming flesh and dwelling among us was the only way we were going to get out of this hole. Jesus doesn't represent us theoretically. He doesn't represent us experientially. No, he, he lived the life that we live. He was tempted like we were, yet was without sin. He felt pain. He felt heartache. He felt disappointment. He cried. He was anxious. He died. And that's who you want in the hole with you. If you look now at 1 John chapter 2, begin reading in verse 1, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We have an advocate with the Father. Do you know what that means? It means that we have someone who fully understands what it is that we're going through. We have someone who has gotten down into the hole with us. That's what it means. In the most literal sense, the word advocate means lawyer or, or attorney. It means to call to one's side or call to one's aid. Jesus is our great defense attorney. In the courtroom of heaven, you have the judge who is God, who is sitting behind the bench. You have the prosecuting attorney who is Satan, and he is levying charge after charge against you, the defendant. And by the way, every charge he's bringing against you is right and it's true. You have no leg to stand on. You stand condemned. You are facing the death penalty. How in the world are you ever going to escape these charges? And that's where your defense attorney comes in. Jesus pleads our case before the judge. He shows his hands and his feet and his side to the judge. And he says, I take his place. And God, the righteous judge, slams down the gavel and says, not guilty. That's how this all plays out, right? Well, not exactly. 
I mean, is God an angry judge with a scowl on his face, gripping the gavel with all his might, ready to hand down a sentence of guilty? Is that how God reacts? Is it up to Jesus to try to convince God to spare you? Is it up to Jesus to go behind God and maybe massage his shoulders and try to convince him that you're not guilty and that he shouldn't lash out in wrathful anger? Is Jesus pleading for mercy to a God who is reluctant to show it? Has God forgotten about the nail-scarred hands and feet and the hole in Jesus' side? Why does Jesus need to remind him of that? It's easy for us to take a word like advocate or lawyer as applied to Jesus and then trim it down to fit our own narrative. But this idea that Jesus is pleading to God to hold off judgment is just not true to the context. This whole courtroom scene is just not true to the context of what we just read. First of all, notice that John writes, we have an advocate with the Father. Notice that word with with the Father. Let's not forget that Jesus and God are one, something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 15. They are in perfect agreement with how humanity should be treated based on the finished product that is the cross. Jesus isn't reminding some feeble old man who's kind of losing his memory of what he did on the cross so that he doesn't hand down judgment. It's not as if God is, is hanging on to our sin and needs somebody to convince him otherwise. You see, there is no trial. There's no need for one. The cross accomplished what it set out to do. It was a once and for all sacrifice. In fact, go back to verse 2 where it says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation is the price of God's wrath. It's the appeasement of his anger. And Jesus took that wrath. Jesus is our propitiation because he is the appeasement of God's wrath. There is no trial. The accuser has no leg to stand on. He can fire all sorts of accusations in our direction, but they will not stick in the ears of God because wrath has been appeased. You know, you go to trial to convict someone of a crime. And yes, we are guilty. That's the whole point, though. We should be condemned. We deserve the death penalty, but Jesus has come to our side. He is our advocate, our propitiation, and because He is, we are free. Our debt has been paid in full. Jesus satisfied God's just requirements so that we could be justified. So instead of thinking in terms of a courtroom scene in heaven, I want you to consider a mountain and a golden calf. Remember Exodus chapter 32? Remember that Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. He comes down to find that the people are running wild. They had convinced Aaron to allow him to, uh, to, to make them a golden calf so that they could worship a God that was more tangible, that they could touch and they could feel. So Moses goes down to check on his people. He sees all this, and that is the day that Moses broke all Ten Commandments. Notice what it says in verse 19. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So Moses goes ballistic. He burns the golden calf. He, he grounds out the powder, scatters it on the water, and forces the people to drink of it. And then notice verses 30 and following. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, 
you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. What did Moses just do? He acted as an advocate for the people. He pleaded their case before God. And who was Moses? Well, he was a deliverer, right? A deliverer of God's people. Not only that, he was a shadow of something better, something that would be coming in the future, something less like a physical deliverer and more like a spiritual deliverer. Getting tired of that theme yet? We've talked about it all year, connecting the old with the new, understanding that the Old Testament points directly to the New Testament and the coming King, the Messiah. We've got to understand the uniformity here, the consistency of Scripture, that the Old Testament sets up the New Testament beautifully. And throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, we see kind of this divine game of where's Waldo? Remember that game? You had this guy dressed in a toboggan and a striped shirt, and you had to pick him out among a myriad of other people and things. Well, it's not as difficult to pick out Jesus in the Old Testament, because once you, once you see him, once you understand the bigger narrative, you see him everywhere. Once you know what you're looking for, seeing him is pretty easy. So let's turn over now to Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah chapter 3, let's just read the whole chapter. It's only 10 verses. Starting in verse 1, here's what we read. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and will also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol, for behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua... On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. So if you want to use the courtroom analogy or the courtroom scene, you have Satan, the prosecuting attorney here, He's the accuser in the truest sense of the word. He thinks that he has a strong case built against Joshua. Joshua is the high priest of all of Judah. If anyone should have been holy and pure, it should have been Joshua. Yet his garments are soiled. He is guilty from head to toe. And God, the divine judge, looks at Joshua, looks at Satan, and basically tells the devil, I'm not listening to you. Case is closed. God has the filthy garments removed from Joshua, 
but he doesn't just remove the unclean. He replaces them with garments that are clean. In essence, God says, give him something to wear that is more fitting of a high priest. Joshua, the high priest, stands as a figure of one who would come bringing that sacrifice that would deal for sin, with sin once and for all. There would be no need for recurring sacrifices on behalf of the people over and over again, year by year. No, the Messiah, who is king and high priest, would be the ultimate sacrifice. In fact, did you notice that here in Zechariah in verse 8 that the word branch is capitalized? Why do you think that is? Who do you think that's talking about? Obviously, it's talking about the anointed one, the coming Messiah, Jesus. You see, it's important to see the bigger picture here that Zechariah is addressing. The people were enslaved. Yes, they were enslaved in captivity, but more importantly, they were enslaved to sin and to Satan. He was their master. The New Testament tells us that all the nations have been given to him. He is the prince of the world. And Zechariah shows this to some degree. He shows that the world was a slave to the master Satan. And the accuser says, God is done with you. He wants nothing to do with you. You are mine now. God has saved a remnant from the fire. He's not done with his people. He still has a plan for them, and that plan includes bringing the Deliverer, the Anointed One, the Messiah, and bringing the Messiah who would also bring His kingdom and victory. That's what Jesus meant for the people, and that's what He means for us as well. He is our advocate. Satan is defeated. No longer will the nations be enslaved to this ruthless master. A new king is coming. Jesus' mission was to destroy the work of Satan, a mission that He accomplished on the cross. Now turn over to Zechariah chapter 13 and just look at verse 1. It says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Folks, Zechariah, Zechariah is speaking to us. Have you noticed that with the minor prophets? Yes, there is original audience that they're speaking to, but they're speaking to us as well. We are living in the days that they talked about. It's just as relevant to us today as it was for those in their time. The defeat of sin and Satan is coming. God's people are hoping for a defeat of all their enemies, and they didn't ever want to return to slavery, but there was one who was coming to defeat an enemy far more threatening than those who had enslaved them, far more threatening than the, the Assyrians or the Romans. Jesus was coming to release the devil's prisoners and he was coming to defeat sin. Jesus was coming as king and high priest, and he would deal with sin. He would be the advocate that they so desperately needed. Zechariah is looking ahead to a day in which the branch will extend its branches, and all those resting underneath will savor salvation and proclaim over and over again that God is good. Me, you, all our Christian brothers and sisters, we stood condemned. We were dressed in filthy rags and garments, but the God of love removed the rags and he clothed us in righteousness. In a very real sense, we went from rags to righteousness. And that's good stuff, isn't it? And I'm sorry if this sounds more like an academic lecture, but there's just so much exciting stuff here that that shouldn't bore us, but rather should lead to transformation on our part. Our king has come. The high priest has come. And he has offered a sacrifice for our atonement forever. Now understand what that means. 
If we show our allegiance to the King, if we are in Christ, we are no longer enslaved by Satan and we are no longer burdened by the weight of sin. No more guilt, no more heartache, no more sorrow, no more depression, no more you know, being put on trial. We have a great high priest who continually comes to our aid, to our side and works on our behalf. We have an advocate who walks beside us and brings us to God. And you say, yes, but, but Chris, I still, I still feel guilty. I know what Jesus has done, but, but I just need to forgive myself. No, you don't. The Bible never says you need to forgive yourself. No, the Bible talks about trusting in your Savior, trusting in the one that has saved you, one who has come to break the chains of sin and death. Be careful using that little word, but. I know what the Bible says, but be careful because what I've learned about that little word, but, is when someone uses it, it typically means forget everything I just said. Now I'm going to tell you how I really feel. How do we really feel about this? Do we really believe that the Savior has come? That he has washed us clean of our sins? Do we believe that the King has set us free? Do you trust in the one who has come to bring you to God God's people waited hundreds of years for this, and so we don't want to diminish it by using that little word, but. But I'm going to. I'm going to use a but here, but it's, it's, it's a positive connotation, not a negative one. As good as all the stuff is that I just mentioned, there's something else. Remember as a kid on Christmas morning, you couldn't wait until it was time to get up and open presents. You looked forward to that day for, for maybe weeks, maybe months, I don't know. Finally, the morning of Christmas is finally here, and you get up, and you go, and you open presents, and after you open all the presents, it's kind of a bit of a letdown, isn't it? All that anticipation, all that excitement is suddenly over, but then your mom goes over to the tree, and she goes, oh, I forgot about this present. You have one more, and now all of a sudden, you're giddy again, right? And you open that present, and once again, you're excited. That's really what's going on here. There's still, there's still more. All the stuff we've just talked about is phenomenal, but there's more. The additional gift is that the Greek word that's used here in 1 John 2 for advocate is the term parakletos. And again, it means to call to one's side or call to one's aid. It is used not only as advocate, but also as intercessor, as counselor, as comforter, as helper. Probably know where I'm going with this. Turn over to John chapter 16. And beginning in verse 5, we read these words. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So, who is the helper? Well, you guessed it. It's the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the one who has been called to our side. Jesus says that this helper will convict people of sin. He says that the helper will convince people of righteousness. And he says that, that the Holy Spirit will convince people of judgment as well. And it only makes sense that these three all come together here. I mean, sin, righteousness, judgment. On the cross, evil stands condemned and defeated. What convicts the sinner concerning a future with God and Jesus? That, of course, is the Holy Spirit. 
This is why he is known as the helper, because he helps to convict and to convince. We receive this helper, this comforter, as a gift at baptism, as if salvation were not an unbelievably exceptional present. God says, wait, there's more. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in the temple that is our body. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. And the Holy Spirit helps us to be strong and fruitful. And here's really a simple way to remember all this. The three S's. If you were to boil it all down, here's how the Holy Spirit comes to our side. To seal us, to speak for us, to strengthen us. My friends, we have all three personalities of the Godhead on our side. You think about that for a moment. We have the righteous judge who declares us not guilty. We have an advocate who comes to our aid or to our defense when the accuser lobbies charges against us. And we have the helper, the comforter, who intercedes for us and strengthens us. Three gifts all rolled into one. Take that, Satan. My friend, Satan is constantly building a case file against you. He has a file that is filled with charges that he is bringing against you. He would love nothing more than for you to spend an eternity away from the Heavenly Father. He would love nothing more than for you right now to stay locked in a prison of self-deprecation and self-loathing. So he's building this case file. And within this case file, there are charges against you that, by the way, are all true. Absolutely, they're all absolutely true. He files these charges against you, and you have no leg to stand on, and you would have no hope if it weren't for Jesus Christ, your advocate. Because you see, there's another case file. And in this case file, it's contained the same contents. Everything that is in Satan's file that is true and right about you, all the deep, dark sins that that reside in the recesses of your soul, it's all there and it's all in this one too. But the difference is, on each page, written in the blood of Christ, are the words paid in full. On every page, paid in full. Take that, Satan. 